0: Mani pemeu momani pemeu momani pemeu Pad na samba vava pad na samba vava pad na samba vava pad na samba vava Bunda laila ma onda laila ma Bunda laila ma Tamal tashid lilama tashid lilama tashid lilama tashid momani pemeu momani pemeu Pad na
1: samba vava pad na samba Welcome to guys open I'm your host Christopher Fisher and today on the program we got John Fisher to talk about Uh, A new book review. We haven't finished our old one, so we we need to do that sometime soon as well. Uh, But we are going to start a brand new book review. And this is uh, Kostin... I don't know how to say his name. Yeah. Well, we just showed it. But uh, Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. Mm -hmm. So, John, uh, say hello. (laughs) Hello again. (laughs) Hello again. Hello. Yeah. So, it's uh, Kostin... Alamaru. And this is a new bestseller on Amazon. And so widely popular, widely being discussed, soon to be banned off of Amazon. Likely, yeah. <laughs> Get it while it lasts. <laughs> Get it while you can. It will soon be gone. Yeah. But uh, so introduction to this book, this book came out and it's by who people claim is a doxed Bap. And Bap is Bronze Age pervert. He he is an influential podcaster, and he's well known in Twitter circles for being like, kind of like a a dumb bodybuilding type of guy. Turns out, Yale PhD wrote best-selling book uh, on uh, genetic selection.
2: Well, <laughs> it's an interesting convergence because it's it's about platonic obsession with genetics selection which is, I, I was stunned actually to, to see that connection because I didn't realize that there was even an argument to be made that Plato was aggressively um, seeking out selective breeding, for example, to build his perfect society.
1: Right, and it's interesting. You did come on the podcast when we are talking about uh, ancient Semitic concepts of blood relation, blood family. How how people the same family group had the same blood, and this tribal instinct that's embedded within. Well, for example, Israelite society, where we see that throughout the Bible, where there there is this inherent tribalism, and th- it talks about this a little bit. Th- this this uh, this attempt to keep the bloodlines pure to keep uh, everyone within the same genetic lineage—you see times where they they bring in outsiders, um, but it'll come in come in waves. At, at one point they'll want outsiders, and at one point they'll want only people of the tribe to have offspring with. And it's probably—if I were to guess—the uh, availability of women is probably the biggest uh, selector of that.
2: I, I mean, you see this with. Royalty all the time, though. Uh, The Egyptians were famous for inbreeding. This is why, when people talk about Cleopatra, that she had to be Greek, is because she's from a line that was Greek originally and was obsessive with inbreeding. Uh, The British, uh, not the British, though, the European aristocracy started interbreeding only with each other so much that they started having a lot of genetic issues. Habsburg dynasty had had this famous thing called the Habsburg chin because of how aggressively they just spread within each other, their own group and so they had this just super prominent jaw and so so these demands from like people in charge that you need to you need to keep the the top level as pure as possible has always been a thing I just didn't
1: realize it was also in Plato and so coast uh, here he talks about how um, certain, Sex of jews are all within five cousins of each other you know there's there's that much uh, selective inbreeding uh-huh. it turns out he himself is half jewish he had published his genetic results and so one thing you do see and you see it whatever movement you go into like the top thought leaders tend to be jewish like uh, we'll take for example milton friedman Uh, a Jewish individual. He pioneered the libertarian movement. Uh, He didn't have any contact with his son, who also turned out to be a big freedom-loving libertarian, big in the movement as well, even though he was not raised by his father. And the, the, the grandson, Patrick Freeman, is also a libertarian. There seems to be some sort of genetic lineage, not based on parenting style, that's just inherent in this family and their, their thought leaders within this movement. And you'll see that uh, throughout society, throughout any movement that you come across within uh, communist Russia, about 70 to 80% of those people running the revolution were in fact Jewish. It's an interesting dynamic that you see there. Yep. <laughs> yes, that is real. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh he does make some astute observations about how society runs in particular, and there's there's a lot of interesting takes away, take takeaways from this because the sexual market is the pinnacle of every other market. Men in particular in particular are motivated to do only what it takes to secure sexual intercourse with mates of their choosing. And in many cases, certainty over the issue of intercourse, which which is offspring. And so what he's claiming here is that All male action is being driven towards being able to select mates of their choosing, to be able to pick from a multiple of women and pick the best women for oneself. And what what do children do in this equation? Children somewhat guarantee that that wife is going to stay loyal to you once she's attached herself to you. And so this is his claim. I, I think it is fairly accurate that that's that is what drives men for status that's what drives men for fame in most cases not all there's people like uh, nikolai Tel- tesla who who spends 80 100 hours a week working without a woman in sight but tesla wasn't driven for fame right he he's just massively autistic we'll say yeah uh, uh,
2: like like he's been promoted uh,
1: sort of resuscitated it was actually thomas edison
2: who was obsessed with fame
1: right yes but tesla was not doing everything he is doing for sexual sexual mating strategy. Right, right. Uh, he was he was basically a, an incel, and he it's. I mean, he could have been. He, if, I, I, I wouldn't say incel. incel.
2: I, I would say asexual.
1: Yeah, asexual. But he is the exception. Most other males are motivated motiv- motivated by access to women. Why do you want that promotion? So you could get more money. Why do you want more money so you could attract a, a better spouse or once you have your spouse yeah. to keep her happy, to grow your family, to, to make this life. And so there is there is a pretty clear indicator that this is how society operates. Men are in competition for women. And so this, this creates interesting dynamics with things that we're seeing going on in today's world with uh, the sexual revolution, with the uh, liberation with uh, feminism all right try to scroll over so this is what i found interesting he points out that there's times within roman history that there there had to be laws for example augustus had to put a tax on bachelors yep yeah he's, and he
2: effectively he's trying to criminalize bachelors to get them to work uh, I didn't know until he mentioned it, that it, it wasn't, it, it failed his attempts to use that as a way to get people to get married. Failed right. Because so people would rather pay extra money than, than feel what they consider the bondage of marriage. Right. So and, these are
1: high value males yeah. and they're able to attract women. Their uh, prostitution is completely legal. Yeah. They have unlimited access to women. They have no incentive to start a family. Starting families and raising families is not innate in men.
2: It. Which is like like all this idea this that you couldn't call a society like Rome any less patriarchal than like like they are the stereotypical patriarchal society, and yet these men had no interest in being the patriarchs; they would rather fritter around than bind themselves.
1: I I, th- I think that's true. There's a Scott Adams cartoon that uh, he drew about uh, hypothesizing what would happen if we all had holodecks. And the cartoon, the joke was this woman comes to Dilbert's house looking to see if Dilbert's available to go on a date. And the joke is that he's a nerdy nerdy engineer that no woman would rightfully want in the current world. Uh, but he's too wrapped up in this holodeck. He's been in there for months and and hasn't exited. So he's not available for this date with this attractive lady who's just seeking any male company. <laughs> and so if if you gave a man everything he wants... Uh, unlimited access to women, unlimited money, unlimited free time. He'd play video games, and uh, ha- I mean that—that's why the you have the
2: more vulgar comment: porn and video games, porn and video. That—that's what—that's what men are doing nowadays. That's what they're doing right now, rather than
1: wanting to get married. Right, and and so this is this is our takeaway: is to the effect that society disincentivizes getting marriage getting married it disincentivizes taking military aged men and investing them in society and having them work for for the care of society and it destroys the social cohesion mm-hmm. to the, to the extent you pull down barriers oh one of the one of the resources i pulled up for this uh conversation was this idea of i got a little cartoon here let me pull it up the Chesterton's Fence. Uh, this cartoon kind of illustrates what it's talking about. But the idea is that if you go into the woods, you're walking around, and you find a fence, um, don't just destroy that fence. Don't destroy a fence that you you don't know why that fence is there in the first place, because that fence might be there for good reasons. And the feminists came into society, and they started pulling down, quote-unquote, the patriarchy the patriarchy probably was there traditionally for very good reasons that they didn't understand. And now society is suffering the consequences. And
2: and the proof of society suffering the consequences is the massively declining fertility rate
1: in the aging population. So I got some stats pulled up here. Uh, This is marriage rates among young adults. And you see the percent marriage I used to be at over 80%. Now it's uh, dropping below 50. Uh, Let's see what other stats I got pulled up here. Oh, this is an interesting article. Almost half of young men have never approached a woman romantically. Not even taken the first step. They've not even attempted that. Uh, Non-marital birth rates in the United States. Broken out by uh, racial categories that self-identified. Uh, we it used to be around zero percent zero to ten percent somewhere around there mm-hmm. uh, but it's just been rapidly increasing since the 40s and you see where the sexual liberation feminism happened in the 60s it spikes and now we're at uh pretty massive rates here let's see is what it, else oh is,
2: is that supposed to all add up to the national how does that work it seems like national should be this the overall right percentage so that, of that births should,
1: to unwed
2: that, mothers that no, yeah but the national maybe i'm being colorblind here oh that's black at the top not national. <laughs> oh okay okay yes. that makes more sense yes
1: that, that makes more sense <laughs> I,
2: I was like oh the average is above everything else
1: Uh oh yeah it's uh all right so we, we do see in what's happening in our society and culture, a couple of consequences for the tearing down of traditional marriage, traditional patriarchy, traditional households. And this has been a coordinated effort. I watched a video somewhere where one of these feminist liberators were explaining what it was all all about. It was all about getting women to enter the workforce because then you're taxing another half of the population and the government's making more money. And w- what happens as a result? All these kids are thrown into institutions. They're institutionalized. They don't yeah, grow the up government around their parents. Owns the
2: kids, and they can control what they think.
1: Yeah. So all so, these negative consequences. I don't think it, this wasn't planned. It was, in fact, planned.
2: I mean, uh, I don't know if negative consequences are planned, but a lot of the like the utility of, of being able to control people and tax them is planned i I don't know if these people are thinking in terms
1: like they think that you're you're knocking down a wall when
2: you're knocking down a house
1: yeah so one thing they 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 probably don't think about second and third order effects they they have this very narrow vision of what they want to accomplish and it doesn't matter all the secondary consequences of those actions yeah yeah the belief is everything will hold up together despite that Right. So here's where uh, Koss, K- Kostin, am I saying his name right? Uh, he, uh, reveals himself- Kostin. Kostin. he reveals himself as maybe an open theist. He's actually just reading the Bible. God had previously attempted to establish his rule with the first man, Adam, or what we could maybe in jest call the ideal man, and failed. He attempted to establish his rule with a universal man, Noah, That also failed. the failure of God's plan for Adam and hereafter the debacle debacles of generations following Adam that led to the flood all had to do with matters of sexual transgression or of misbreeding after his failures first with the ideal man. And then with the universal man, after Noah, God decided to establish his law with a tribe or nation. Yeah. So there in Genesis six, you do see some sort of sexual sin that's being committed which in part is the reason why God condemns all flesh. There's yeah. a huge sexual aspect.
2: Sex is—it's like- it, hard to interpret what the, that aspect was because it, it seems to refer to things that are difficult to to know about. So something that was better understood and known at the time than, than what we can really grasp right now
1: right so he he accurately criticizes social conservatives uh, social conservatives oh, yeah uh, they'll go moralize on TV. It's like, oh men need to stand up and and be men and and uh, wed single mothers. oh I, I did <laughs> yeah. where where I got I pulled down a, a tweet or something about one man's experience in a church here. He says As I had a huge black church. The bishop said, single brothers stand up. we stood up. He said, single mothers, stand up. They stood up. Then he said, brothers, I need you all to man up and marry these good sisters. Myself (laughs) and about 13 other brothers left, and we went back. Never went back. (laughs) That that is, never went back, yes. Um, Which is the correct response to some sort of pastor demanding that you raise other men's children. That's a weird demand. It's a moralizing demand, and it's, it's... it's basically a violation of these men, right? Yeah. So yes, yeah, and
2: and they, look, like this is the point that we're making, like with the Roman situation as well, is that you can't really shame people into taking this really hard, arduous role when being carefree is more enjoyable, easier, makes more sense.
1: Right. You used to be able to do that when when uh, actually social shaming had some sort of power, like in World War One, women would go around with white feathers. And if there was a man who was not in the military and over fighting in the trenches with with mustard gas and getting himself killed, they'd they'd call him a coward and they'd give him these white feathers. And and this was a huge campaign to get men through shame to volunteer to go die in some war for who knows what. And so that only works in a high trust, high cohesion society. And so what what's happening nowadays is they're trying to use shame. Uh, feminists and uh, social conservatives are trying to use shame to try to shame men into marriage. It's just not working because shame's not effective in a low trust society, which yeah. we are turning into
2: you already don't care about their opinion, but but anyone who's paying attention knows they're trying to shame you into taking an insane amount of responsibility where you're still treated like crap. Like, like it's not being shamed into doing something respectable. It's being shamed into doing something inherently disrespectful.
1: Right. And uh, it's pretty funny in the Bible. Often when God (laughs) is talking about Israel committing adultery against him, he talks about, these these bastard children raising children of other men it's a it's a shameful concept in those societies and so a modern american society are taking a bunch of men who purposely uh they have checked out a society due to all the disincentives that we've given to these young men and we're trying to shame them into actions that they they have no benefit of taking it's just it's yeah. a, a losing a losing venture
2: And it's also important to understand that these men in these societies, especially historically, have been the workhorse of any society. If you somehow cannot convince them to work for you, if you can't convince them to to break their back and toil long hours and try to fight for you at at all times, you fail. Your society as a whole collapses because the one next to you breaks into it.
1: Yeah, so ancient Israel... Um, seems to be keenly aware of uh, these issues. And so in Deuteronomy 20 and thereabouts, it talks about all the sexual laws. And one of them is basically that young men, one of the good rules they have is if a young man gets married, um, he doesn't go to war for a whole year. He gets a whole year to enjoy his bride. It, It encourages people to get married. And it encourages, it it tells them that, you know, this is a safeguard. You're not going to die before you get the fruits that you really want out of society. Another of their rules was war brides. Let's say, let's say you are a dis, uh, you're like a socially awkward young man in America. No, no, no woman wants you, right? Why are you going to go fight for America when you have no incentive? Maybe they'll, they pay you enough money. But if what you're really seeking is women. Is, is that going to help you get what you want? Uh, war brides serve a very particular function in these societies, is to convince these young men to risk their lives to save the tribe, uh, to, to go fight and risk their lives in order to better society. It gives them something in society to check into. And there, there's laws about these war brides. You, you couldn't mistreat them. You couldn't just quick divorce them. Uh, They'd be free if you tried to divorce them, things like that. But it gives you some sort of guarantee of sexual access. And as we talked about before, the premise of this book is that's the pinnacle of what men strive for is sexual access to women. And so you also look at the biblical laws about adultery. Adultery is having sex with another man's wife is a capital offense. So society is doing everything it can to incentivize People to buy into society. They know that society, to the extent it can, is ensuring that your wife is remaining faithful, especially when you're out fighting for your society, that your wife remains faithful and another guy is not destroying your livelihood and destroying your life back at your house. That's not the case in modern America. There's no fault divorce. Women will take your money, they'll take everything. There's no incentive now for men to get married and to fight for that marriage. They're checking out society, something that our ancients knew better than us how to incentivize men to buy into society. He says uh, the problem with the view of social of the social conservative is that it assumes a man's duty to his wife and children is more natural and therefore more easily enforced than it actually is. And of course, we've seen in the statistics that that is not the case. Marriage rates are plummeting. Men are checking out. Uh, Single motherhood rates are increasing exponentially. Naturally, men do not want to take care of their families. Only when they're incentivized to do so, do they indeed take care of their families. You're not going to morally shame men into taking care of their families. You have to provide incentives.
2: Yeah, and arguably the origins of the patriarchy were
1: those incentives. Right. If you don't want your society to fail, incentivize men to create society they often do not see the immense work that has to go into making men good husbands and fathers nor the great privileges through which men had to be enticed to accept these duties still less do these, do they see or dare to mention the great work or some would say oppression that has to be exerted to make women faithful wives and mothers. Yeah. So we've, we've spent millennia crafting men into being faithful, uh, dutiful, high conscientious fathers and what happens in the course of 50 years you destroy all that all the social credit's gone you get sexual liberation you got liberalization of adultery laws you've just destroyed everything that society has been building up for it it takes you could destroy in an instant what it takes centuries to build and so it goes both ways uh women to make women faithful wives and mothers also takes a lot of influence women aren't naturally faithful wives and mothers women naturally want to <clears throat> latch on to yeah, their they're hypergamous they, they want to latch on to the most successful male as you'll see in, in the modern society and he gets to that we'll, we'll see what he says he also criticizes the leftists, the social liberals and feminists make the same mistake They assume the problem is that men desire patriarchy and ownership over the wife and family, that men desire dominion over the wife and children. They do not see these are, in part, methods some civilizations resorted to in order to induce men to accept responsibilities of father and husband. Men deprived of patriarchy have no reason to accept duty or responsibility, nor the loss of freedom that goes with family life. Again, it's playing out in society. We're seeing it before our eyes. Uh, the feminists and the social liberals, as he calls them, came to a society that had well-working traditional families. They saw only oppression and they tore down that fence without knowing why that fence was erected. Oh. I mean, there's there's an endless number of slew of
2: arguments that were made at the time for why that fence was erected and they tore it down. It's not even. I don't think ignorance is an excuse for, for not knowing why.
1: It's that they didn't care. Yeah, they just wanted the fence down at all clock at, at all costs. Yeah. The problem, as social liberals and feminists are finding out, isn't that men seek by nature or education to dominate wives or children, but that men simply don't care. Well, men don't care. If if we start trying
2: to understand why they don't care, why the left doesn't care, we get into this a little bit later in this book. Um, indirectly but it's the it's the attachment to egalitarianism if you start making an argument that men are different than women they immediately recoil at it and so you if you try to base all your arguments that society should be structured a certain way and it should be structured that way because men are different than women then uh they will believe that that's that was a social construct in the first place and therefore that should be torn down to create the new equality
1: right so leftism inherently is a rejection of science um and that's what this book is set out to discuss is selective breeding uh, genetics and how our genetics dictate or push us towards who we are you know there's always going to be some wiggle room but you know if you are mild-mannered and your wife is mild-mannered your kids more than likely are going to be mild-mannered your kids are going to take after you genetically I
2: mean, I've only read the introduction right now. Is this book more about the science, or is is it spend all its time on Plato?
1: Uh, well, we could wait and and see what the becomes of that. But he but points my to my impression the, is
2: it's more about philosophy than science, and it takes the science for granted.
1: Right, I, but he points to all the studies and stuff like that. That uh, ge- the genetic, the the revolution in genetic science over even the last twenty years has been astounding, and there's there's no reason except for adherence to some sort of ideological persuasion that they're de- they're denying things like iq is heritable hereditable that it's you can inherit iq if two smart parents breed they're gonna have a smart kid if two tall parents breed they're gonna have a tall kid these these things are not they're not just a random scale going up and down and but that's that that needs to be denied by the political left because the implications that our behavior is genetic destroys all sorts of victim narratives oh these it destroys, people
2: this destroys the appeal to egalitarianism it as, does... the, as the principal virtue which the victim narratives rely on
1: yeah we're we're all equal and in a in a just society we would all have equal outcomes everything would be statistically yeah. the same which is a complete lie complete fabrication and so these things need to be censored people need to be thrown out of their professions noble prizes taken away from people for just uttering just plain scientific fact so oh but i, I would also like to say that again this this whole leftist movement of course we we started this book by saying that it's all about people struggling to dominate in the sexual marketplace this social revolution is no different and so mystery grove has an interesting tweet out there that i will pull up he's got a couple of them but he says reminder communism is when ugly deformed freaks make it illegal to be normal and rob or kill all the successful people out of petty resentment and cruelty the ideology is all just window dressing and so you you got all these people in society who come from the lesser desired rungs that's what typically makes up leftism, and they're they're struggling for sexual dominance in their own fields, and they could do that by creating this niche community that fights for these principles and putting themselves at, at the head of those societies.
2: Uh, it reminds me of the uh, the weird finding. I think it. Do I have a link to it? I, I might still have the link
1: where it. conservatives are ranked more attractive than leftists and like the no, blind no this no, 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 no. Blind...
2: No, no, this one's maybe even funnier. Um apparent apparently when they they find all the the pedophiles in Canada like the police like started see trying to see what was in common between all of them. And they're all
1: it's all Star Trek. Okay. okay they're all Star it. Trek
2: fans <laughs> <laughs> It's this uh, idea of destroying all taboos and Star Trek is very much about that right and one taboo is pedophilia
1: yeah uh, what, what you can see is uh, Adam writes a blank slate equal equalism has been one of the biggest and most damaging lies of the last century. So if you see like, like the mugshots of all these antifa types they tend to be deformed weird looking people it's there there's a certain class of people that gravitates to certain ide- ideology. And so that's that's somewhat what he's talking about, that uh, people who have better breeding don't adhere to these ideologies. All right. So he says, uh, the leftists make the same mistakes that the conservatives do. And that's absolutely true. Assuming that men want to take responsibility for the family and want control and dominance, men don't. Men want sexual access and to have fun. Uh, that That's all. That's all men want. Uh, that make them happy if if you're in some sort of uh, post-apocalyptic situation and you're running a gang of men that's what they want they don't want to build families and settle down
2: yeah raid loot and pillage
1: yeah he says well
2: like every man's a pirate underneath it all
1: it's very telling that to solve this problem, both social conservatives and some feminists have are resorting to shaming men into accepting responsibilities of father and husband. Both often exhort and even Hector unmarried men to man up. This happens so often that it's become a running joke or cliche in some circles. <laughs> and yeah, we pulled up that tweet. It's like, yeah, these pastors who are doing this, oh, just just marry up. It's like these men have no incentive. You've disincentivized them. Are you, conservatives. Uh, the right-wingers, you have let society degrade through all your ceding of territory to feminism in this effort to placate these women. You have destroyed families. You have destroyed the social fabric. Boomer conservatives have done this. So men seek status above all because it is attractive to women. Right, so men don't seek status for its own sake. Not typically. Men seek status because it gives them access to women. If men become rock stars, why? Because women love rock. If women did not love rock stars, we would see a whole lot less musical bands. Yeah, right. People performing men want access to women. Women are attracted to people who have status. So men go through this a pony show in order to attract them through these status games.
2: Yeah, I mean, men tend to show extremes in all kinds of different ways, and and they they seek out weird and esoteric things. There are so many niches YouTube communities, and all, almost all of them are dominated by men. Uh, you know, programming stuff, weird uh, like lore for all these like weird stories. I think Forty K is almost all a, a male audience, for example.
1: Yeah, there was an article I just saw online that said meet the women who play 40k and then it's uh it's a trans dude. It's it's <laughs> it's like a dude in a dress. Yeah, that was the that was that's the joke about esports too,
2: is that all the all the women who are stars in esports are yeah. actually trans men.
1: Yeah, it's like they're all dudes. It's like all the best speedrunners, all the best runners, they're all dudes in dresses. Yeah. It, that, yeah. that's because men men so, do get but, but they're not
2: they're not actually dude that the speed runners are not trying to attract women by being the best i think
1: they've runner. given up i i feel like that that's the only thing they got but, left but, but so there's there's
2: something in the psyche of men to just sort of like be competitive and it, and all i'm saying is that the biological trigger to be competitive uh has the side effect of attracting women because right. it creates status in general and if speed running became this insane popular thing among men <laughs> I, you know women would be into that and I mean, then it, all it, the trans people wouldn't get any it's placing it's, it's it's where we started like pretending nerdy was cool for a while like well, that was the whole I don't know 2000s with the whole big bang theory era where they're trying to say nerdy is cool and, and then like people are all trying to be sort of like half science geek
1: right well, it's, it's always a continual psyop on both men and women they're like yeah. women look look these are the guys you should be attracted to. And they're like, hey, men, you should be attracted to fat ladies. And the body shape and size doesn't matter. Unless you're a woman seeking a man, then you can body shame all you want. But if you're a man seeking a woman, you should even like dudes in dresses should be your thing. Yeah, uh, but, but,
2: but this is demonstrably the most ridiculous shaming thing. You can, not, you can never shame a man into wanting to be with a transsexual. Like it, it's it just doesn't work, and they've tried it. You've seen it. You've seen multiple times where they try to do it, and it just fails, falls flat on its face. Man would rather be castrated.
1: Yeah, there was a study I just saw on Twitter that someone was posting around that people still see like homosexual acts as closely related to seeing maggots. Right? There's like an inherent disgust that is genetically bred into us. This revulsion to same sex attraction. So I'm going to scroll forward a little bit. (laughs) It says, first, precisely through the ideal of chastity and the grudging concessions made, therefore, to monogamy alone is possible that Christianity stabilized family life and thereby promoted in many cases uh, salutary and steady, but not Malthusian increase in population. So I found this sentence interesting because what does Christianity do? It promotes monogamy. And in a society where you have roughly 50% women, 50% men, that will ensure that lower tier men actually have access to women to marry. Yeah. Because absent that, what do we see? What do we see in today's society is all the women, you've got women who are fives thinking that they could secure a man who's a nine and then turning 30, turning 40, and being childless. Uh, because it, society has lied to them Uh, a top tier man will have sexual relations with a lower tier woman but he won't marry that woman it'll give her this false sense of reality and so what what does that leave you with it leaves you with the bottom portion 80 percent of women uh sad rejected dejected and leaves you with the bottom 90 percent of men sad and dejected as well they weren't able to secure a mate in a timely fashion uh he talks a little bit later here about how what this does is it creates a hierarchy in which the top 10% of both genders are living fabulous, fabulous lives, but everyone else is suffering. Society suffers as a result when you do not enforce monogamy.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And this is in a large way happening right now. Uh, I one thing that's interesting, if you if you try to think about this, is that if you actually have enforced monogamy, and you you restrict sexual relations to within marriage, which is what Christianity effectively did, what you do is if you have a positive birth rate, and we've all seen those demographic charts where they're they're pyramids or inverted pyramids. Right. If you have a pyramid, you you have a situation where men men Women tend to marry up and men tend to marry down, right? So in a pyramid shape, the men of a certain age are all looking at the women lower in age than them. And in a a pyramid shape, there's more women actually than men. And so it's not like it's a 50-50 pairing. Men actually have a better selection in a positive birth rate society and will always have that. But it, in, in the case where your population is declining, it's like it comes starts going in free fall because it's the opposite, is that uh, women rule the dating market in that sense. Because yeah, well, <laughs> there's, there's all these men competing over a, few, a dwindling amount of women.
1: Yeah, imagine being a Chinese male in yeah. today's China society where men outnumber women. What is it, like three to one or something like that? Something terrible. You just, you have no options.
2: Yeah, and, and so so basically men will conform to whatever women want, and it completely feminizes the society at that point.
1: Oh, yeah, there was another tweet. I didn't pull it down, but uh, it, it was basically like, uh, if you want women to be, be uh, jackboot-wearing, right-wing, uh, anti-immigration, uh, join the Nazi party, doing the hail salute, the fastest way to do that is to just allow open immigration just to women. they will in mass riot to shut down immigration because the sexual marketplace dynamics would be heavily thrust against them so right now our immigration is importing mostly mostly young men yeah and so it doesn't affect them and uh, they're they're free without consequence to say oh let's let everyone in Um, It doesn't matter what ill effects. We just have to be nice. But if it was young women that were pouring over the borders, they would be up in arms. They would be grabbing the pitchforks because that would actually hurt their value rather than in a situation where you're flooding the country with young men. That's increasing their sexual marketplace value. That's giving them more value relative to the men. If you have more men competing over fewer women, women have more value and vice versa. This is just supply and demand economics. all right so he talks about some of the effects of christianity which uh you could uh give or take
2: yeah he says monotheism he says that the restriction against cousin marriages is a very important one it's apparently one we we don't take as seriously as we need to because like at least we know with the 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 monarchies of the past they very much did not practice this and that's what started leading to all these problems in, in Egypt, and like I said, with Habsburgs and a lot of European dynasties, and definitely throughout the world, they started the inbreeding was bad for them long term.
1: Mm-hmm. So he he talks about the genetic effects of Christianity, which he sees as negative. This democratizing of breeding, which is which is interesting. I, I pulled up another stat which we pulled on the screen very briefly that very few men within history has, have actually bred, have actually passed on their genetics. And, uh, here is that. Yeah. I want to be careful about this, but point it out first. Except maybe, maybe 40 or 30% of men have ever reproduced whereas double that percent of women have ever reproduced. Okay, so
2: here's the thing. We, so the the argument that is often made around this this fact, which you, you get this fact from genetics, right? The argument that's often made around it is that women are, are pickier than men, which I think there's lots of reasons to say women are pickier than men and are only picking the best men, but I don't think this particular thing is proof of that. And the reason is that we don't live in a society, well, most of human history has not been a society where uh, the sexual marketplace was the sole determining factor in the pairing. Men lived in constant state of war with hard labor, would die early as disposable things for the, the ruling class, right? And the ruling class would uh, take all the women, often, themselves. So that so to, to say it was women choosing this is not not necessarily the thing to point out.
0: Yeah. How do women typically
2: die? They die in childbirth. They die being successful, passing on their genetics.
1: Right. They die. When you read people talking about ancient sexual ethics, like they'll say things like, there's no such thing as rape. Rape is not a concept in that world. Adultery, the violation is against the betrothed husband or Mm -hmm. the violation against the father. It's not actually against the woman herself. Right. Right. So you can't commit. In ancient Israel, you can't commit adultery if you're having a sex with a single woman, whether or not you're married or not. That's not adultery. it's Rape is just not a concept. The violation has to be against another man. That's how society was structured. And it's structured for very good reasons, because you want to keep together the social fabric of it. And so women in history did not have the selective mating choice that they have in today's world. They didn't have dominance over the market. They they were, in fact, they they lived brutal lives. And if a guy comes in, he's going to kill your whole family, and he's going to take you for a bride. You're you're probably going to live your life now, yeah, wed you, to you him. Still
2: live, you still live, and you still pass on your offspring.
1: Right. You, but you it might, wasn't
2: your choice.
1: <laughs> yeah, you might in fact kill your own children so that you yourself survive and have children with your new conqueror, yeah. as has been the case. Yeah. throughout history uh sometimes the women are a little bit more hardy th- than that like when the romans were fighting the germans and the germans came down in huge hordes and they'd bring their family and caravans behind them well, what happened was when the romans were defeating these germans the women at the back of the line would have swords themselves they'd kill any men who were retreating and then, the
2: romans retreating
1: no any of their own men this so, is the germans yeah if they're german men their husbands. Yeah. retreat and run from the romans they will kill their own husbands yeah. and then before the romans get to them they would kill themselves and their children not in that order they'd kill their children first yeah and so um but you do see that throughout history where women are just these these playthings of society right he says that uh there there's strong evidence that suggests that uh altruism towards strangers is hereditary in certain populations i absolutely believe that i think uh, for example the nordic the scandinavian countries have been so pacified and have genetically selected for passive men uh, men who don't have uh, strong strong will strong conscious uh, people who aren't strong in justice it's been selecting against that for so long that they're just very accepting of strangers. And now what? Sweden is the rape capital of the world because these people just let them in and they don't fight back. They've been selectively bred. Not not even that. It's the worst worst of all is they've sent their young men to the front lines of Europe to die in trenches with gas warfare and killed probably the most the, the yeah. men w- with the most will to survive the men. The, the, who, yeah. The great world Wars probably wiped
2: out significant portions of the, the most, um, uh, aggressive. men,
1: <laughs> the, the high T individuals, high testosterone men. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's killing the best and brightest and who, who gets saved the people who are cowardly or who don't enlist or, yeah. or who, who stay at the sidelines that, so you have all these wars and it's it's not like the ancient wars where you just run in with a sword and whoever's stronger wins this is you just mass bomb people you just drop a mustard gas bomb and just kill a bunch of people and so it's it's not even whoever has more muscles wins and so you're 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 selecting towards whoever has the better technology rather than whoever has the most endurance and so I, I definitely think we see these tendencies within European society to breed for low testosterone non-manly men. and I, I went I went to Norway and it like they've they've outlawed knives. you, you can't carry around a knife. One guy was talking about he's jacked up by the cops for carrying around a knife in his belt. It's like, what are you guys doing? what what is this?
2: Yeah, it's amazing to like if you if you know anything about Germany before World War 1 and then what happened what it became after the end result of the 20th century. It's it's a night and day contrast. Like it was one of the most ambitious, industrious countries in the world. And if you look at their results in World War 1, they were pretty much the most meaningful power of the Oh, it wasn't the Axis. What did they call them at that time?
1: Oh, wasn't it the
2: Axis still? Wasn't the ce- it they called
1: they, call, they call
2: them the Central Powers. Oh, okay. They like this the, the, Austria Hungary wasn't actually very effective. They they had a lot of incompetence. So they required German officers to come and help form them up. And uh, Turkey didn't do much but defend. They weren't really a threat on any offensive at any time. So really Germany was the thing holding the whole fight together. And so if you look at the, the war that happened, world war one, it's Germany against uh, everyone, <laughs> everyone. And they held their own so much that, you know, the end of the war, the armistice happened and they still hadn't had a single foot on their territory at the point of the armistice. So, so it was an, like they did a herculean job in that war and and arguably that that might be related to why people wanted
1: the war in the first place if they saw germany as a threat yeah then they did it again in world war ii what what is mussolini doing he's 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 thwarting hitler by invading (laughs) greece at inopportune times forcing delays in the russian campaign and just take, all the Germans thought these these Italians were worthless, that they were propping them up, and they surrender almost immediately once yeah. they're invaded. And so they're doing all the heavy lifting in both wars. Yeah. And I do have an interesting chart. And, think, and, and it wiped out all of the, the, the strong Germans, most of them. Right. And let's not forget the denazification that happened after yep. World War yep. II, yep. in yep. which there, there was mass history. retaliation killings against anyone associated with the regime um that's that's not talked about in today's society there's there's a good documentary that's posted on youtube about all the post-world war ii retaliation killings of anyone associated but i i did get this graph i think it's from charles murray's human accomplishments that show oh. like 97 of all generally agreed major historical accomplishments yeah. in arts and science are since the 14th century are made. By males born in a small area of northern Europe. Now I, I'm Norwegian, so I'm not in this cluster. I'm. Well, we are actually because. No, I did my. We're fifty
2: percent Norwegian, and then the rest of our genetics are in this cluster. No, I, like I did German DNA. I'm
1: ninety percent Norwegian.
2: You are ninety percent.
1: And ten percent okay, English.
2: I'm, okay, I'm basing it off of.
1: Yeah. 50% of, yeah. You're you're uh, basing you're, by oral oral tradition.
2: No, 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 no. I actually I'm basing it off mom's side. Took took, and and the dad took his own test as well. And I'm just taking 50 percent of all. Yeah, life.
1: that's probably a bad thing. You, just, you probably just get the get the test. Just got to get the test. But I'm not represented here, so this is not like self-serving uh-huh. bias.
2: Yeah, that's why you haven't invented anything. I see. Yeah, i have not I invented. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> you nor you weak Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Unlike me, (laughs) I have I have invented an expedited way to give spankings, distribute them to seven kids in a day. No, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so this is an interesting claim. What that points to is that there is something going on within this small area of the world within this time frame that sets them apart from the rest of the world in some fashion. And uh, what well, is it—the combination of intelligence and entre- entrepreneurship, um, innovation, some sort of drive for freedom? Because uh, uh, Germans aren't aren't like the highest IQ population in the world. Uh, the Asian populations are tend to be not, higher. Not, not today. <laughs> not today. Okay, maybe okay. back then. Okay, like, maybe.
2: Uh, you really, you really got to compare the people at the time, especially before. The 19th century, the 18th century was an incredible time of Europe. Had a lot of peace in that time period, post Napoleon, but before World War One, that portion of the world was not racked with wars in in the way they started moving on to colonialism
1: instead, and so that allowed a lot of prosperity to happen. Uh, speaking of colonialism, your your fiance just walked in. yeah sure (laughs) (laughs) the culture of civility on which liberal private society is built is inconceivable without this preparatory work done by christianity and which was carried out most effectively at the root determining who married who and therefore i gotta flip the page here what kind of children were to be born and so he correctly points out that Christianity had a huge effect on what type of populations bred and expanded. And I think it did a very good job of selecting for a peaceful, well-ordered society that was fairly functioning, that, that actually, actually was able to produce and uh, give us standards of living that we loved. And so what happened in the modern world is people saw this and they thought that it was exportable to just any population. And what happens? We bring democracy to Palestine. uh, George Bush does, and he says, "Okay, you guys vote for whoever you want." They vote. They vote Hamas in power, and then George Bush is like, "Oh, we didn't want that. Uh, Let's do. Not allowed. Not allowed." Uh, In Yemen, Hillary Clinton said, "Okay, we're going to do democracy, but uh, this time uh, we're only going to put one candidate on the ballot, and so uh, then our guy will be in power. He isn't in power for like a week before he's overthrown by by the local populations." This is a population that's wholly unsuited. This is what happened with Niger, too.
2: So I, I don't know if you pay attention. Niger just had a rebellion just recently. Uh, this is the place where it's right next to Nigeria. It was French-occupied, and they got all of their... Um, I think it was uranium. I, I think it's uranium for their, for their power plants. And, and they just had a rebellion that overthrew this supposedly demo- democratically elected leader to, to install a non-democratic government, but the, the whole population is in support of this.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. America keeps trying to export what we think is the American way of life to populations that who are wholly unsuited. And, and if you actually read the founding documents, I think it's James Madison who writes in the Federalist Papers that democracy is just, it's not suited for a different population than uh, Christian Americans. It, it's just, it's not generally exportable to the rest of the world. And he's definitely right. And we see that time and time again where we export democracy only for it to fail. How, how, how's Lib- Libya doing after our interventions, right? All right, I'm going to skip over his Plato and Aristotle stuff. He makes claims, but he doesn't back them up. So unless you want to talk about his claims about Plato and Aristotle.
2: Well, actually, I thought his claims about, about Plato and Aristotle are... are... I, I think it's probably the the point of his book. He, he keeps arguing that's the point of his book, so it's probably worth talking about it right now. Yes, uh, if you want to if you want to continue talking about his book past the introduction, yes.
1: Uh, right. Well, one of his claims, it was funny. he's he said, well, Plato had this work in which he talks about uh, tyranny and stuff like that. but uh, Socrates, uh, uh, Socrates, who's usually the main character, it's not who he's champion as the main character and makes weak arguments. And so Plato was actually championing this other guy as those guy, that guy having the correct views. Like, yeah, maybe.
2: Yeah. He's, he, he, the, the argument is that maybe. he's being a little bit subversive by, by making his own character to be the simpleton simpleton. And the person he's dialoguing with to be the actual hard to argue.
1: And sometimes you see that like in Timaeus, where Timaeus is actually the guy giving all the Neoplatonistic philosophy, uh, Platonism, different hypostases and the ideas about God. And then Socrates is the passive listener just kind of asking questions. So you do sometimes see that within his work.
2: Right. Because so typically in all of Plato's works, and Plato's the one who, who essentially wrote, like everything we know of Socrates is what Plato wrote. Plato has Socrates like make fools of everyone he's talking to. right? And so it's the same thing with this guy Critias, who's supposed to be made fool of by Plato, and he's saying it's actually the other way around. Now, the argument that he's making is that uh, Socrates was actually executed for arguing against democracy and corrupting the youth, and that Socrates' students were Alcibiades, and I, I can't remember the other one, uh, his students but eventually Aristotle's student alexander the great as well uh were all believing in the perfect king coming from plato's republic to to establish the a a sort of kingdom rule rather than having these democratic governments and so it was they were actually philosophy was actually teaching politics not some sort of like idea of epistemology and metaphysics they were actually using epistemology and metaphysics to push politics
1: yeah i think th- he has a funny sentence i didn't highlight it but he's basically said oh low down low key plato was into eugenics uh nietzsche uh he and, yeah. he was and the that's one the to,
2: biggest thing yeah
1: yeah he was the one to uh un uh uncover I, within yeah. plato's work how plato was a secret e- eugenist he, he's unwrapping
2: Plato's attachment to eugenics and his, his argument is that the Greeks actually practiced aggressive and brutal eugenics to create the Greek society that they had in the first place and, Plato and they was did extending that. And Plato was just extending that to say the ideal society is where philosopher King was the most aggressive and brutal at creating the warrior case caste and, and the uh, you know the, root, the uh, governing body, Caste, and then the, the philosopher king that comes out of that and then you have the proles who are supposed to work to work the fields and those sorts of things
1: right and so- then uh he, he points out in india that they had the caste system where only certain castes of people could breed with other castes and there's limited social mobility between those castes. but if you're at the top caste, you can't marry all the way down to the bottom caste. And part of this was to keep control of the government in the hands of people who are trustworthy to further the agenda of those populations.
2: So I I find these arguments that they're kind of like the uh, big if true kind of arguments that that the funny thing, the joke about Plato's Republic, which is the thing that argues for for essentially this politics, this idea of an ideal society is that it's like a 900 page work and so the joke about it is it's the book that everybody knows about and nobody's read <laughs> because because what are you going to read it for it it's so long and it, it feels so unrelatable right and so everyone wants to get the cliff notes or just hear about it and hey, what he's saying is that there's a hidden message that's being suppressed that when plato says natural what he means is aggressive genetic uh, uh
1: Heredity, hereditary qualities.
2: Aggressive eugenics program is what he's actually saying that he wants, which again, I haven't read the Republic, but some idea of these, like these ideas of like a warrior caste that seems to suggest that sort of thing.
1: No, I did look up some of his references and the references kind of say the things that he's saying. Like when he talks about how the Spartan women are blamed by what, by, uh, Aristotle for destroying Sparta (laughs) and it's like yeah his reference kind of says that um but he he might be reading a little bit into that reference and so
2: his argument is that everyone's a eugenicist in the classical era though and so it's not like he's not like Plato is really hiding it that much he's just kind of hiding the idea that um he's actually opposing the democracy of Athens at the time
1: Yeah, so Athens was uh, subverted by what by the Persians because they were all bribable by by uh, by emissaries from Persia. Spartans were not.
2: This turns out to be what happens with all democracies. Yeah, it turns out when you promise a bunch of people, turns out that that it doesn't even protect us today. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you, you, you can see the argument that this is actually a weaker form of rule because it makes it like it creates a um, duplicitous governing body.
1: Right, he writes. Uh, Many ancient traditions assume that human pairings are not and should not be random. They assumed unconsciously or not that hereditary nature of various qualities, and therefore assumed that great care must go into matchmaking. And you'll see this in like Roman households. The Roman households would like typically have a room for all your ancestors. Uh, your lineage was a huge deal within the Bible. Lin- lineages, like modern people will be reading and they'll come across a lineage <laughs> yeah. and like, what is this? I, just a bunch I of names. <laughs> lineage, it was important. It was a yeah. pillar in their society. It was who you descended from. If you're descended from a king, you're descended from King David, that's a big deal. Uh, uh, the kings would trace their lineage back to Hercules, something like that. Divine rights, divine origins say i have this lineage i have this blood in me the blood of gods which gives me some sort of inherent right that other normie people do not have
2: yeah and that's one of the weird things about the the very ancient lineages it didn't really happen that much in the bible It, it did in genesis in the sense that you have the the people from the longest ago had the longest lasting ages right they lived methuselah's a thousand years old that sort of thing but in like the other the the non-biblical lineages these people are lasting multiple thousands of years old and some of them are actual gods and and so the idea is that the 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 older ends up being the greater and the more more important And, and so you base your entire society off these lineages and rome was based off of those lineages as well
1: and where'd they come from? They came from the great heroes of Troy. They were resettled yeah. from Troy.
2: Exactly. Some more lineage.
1: Yeah. It's, it's all about we came from these heroes. Here's what our ancestors did. This blood flows through us. Uh, so scrolling a couple pages forward, he talks about Marxism. Now, I, I read the Communist Manifesto like once or twice in my life, and uh, it struck me about in the Communist Manifesto, He Coastin does, uh, doesn't get To it in this book or within this intro chapter at all, but within within the Communist Manifesto, uh, Karl Marx, this this scraggly guide, no girl would ever want at all, ever, unless she's paid, maybe. Uh, he he wants sexual liberation of women, all women in common. And it's gonna be this sexual utopia. Mm -hmm. And so it's like he did not have the foresight to see the hierarchies that would evolve as a result of these policies. It, marxism is based on this fantasy that hierarchies can be abolished whereas yes. and, and this,
2: this is the driving fact of trying to abolish ideas of even gender which is push it being pushed today the idea of, of destroying the idea that there is a difference between men and women at all in any way shape or form is all driven by this idea that any all of these differences create hier- hierarchy simply because there are differences and so all diversity is non-effect, non-meaningful effect and, and doesn't change. Like everyone is basically the same because all diversity is, is is completely indistinct.
1: Yeah, so here's the result of the sexual liberation. It's not what Marxists thought that everyone is uh, kumbaya living and, all things in common. Yeah, that's it says, his response. Yeah. Abandoning conventional and traditional hierarchies that were no doubt oppressive has brought pain because modern man now comes face to face with a more primordial hierarchy, one yep. that is inescapable and uncanny. He's talking about the sexual marketplace where 10% mm-hmm. of the men attract 90% of the women and uh, 90% of the men live in misery. Uh- if you talk to most people, most men
2: who have been on Tinder, they are, they walk away completely dejected and depressed because most of them get no attention at all. They like they they spend all their time doing their right swipes, and get nothing, except for uh, uh, clickbait kind of things and and catfishes. Yeah, and and so like that's even more demoralizing that you finally think you you have something and then it's just more fraud, you know. And so it's a completely, and, and it's not good for women either, because they get all kinds of matches and get overwhelmed by it and, and don't know what to do with it. And, and so they 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 start trying to talk to all the same guys, thinking that oh okay, well look look how much selection I have. Let me just start talking to these guys, and then those few guys are talking to a bunch of women. So
1: it doesn't really work out for the women who are looking for men either. Right. And so they they have been given this false sense of reality where them maybe being a five or six rated woman can attract the nine rated men, but he's only interested in that brief sexual access. He's not interested in starting a family and women interested in that. If he didn't just swipe right on everything. Right. And so it, it it creates a society in which you have depressed and lonely men who don't get girls. They don't have access to women. Um, they have to wait until their 30s and 40s before they get a lady. And that lady's had a huge sexual history behind her. And then she's taking uh, things that leftover men, you know, men that she she finally figures out that she's settling for uh, her her uh, hopes of having this fairy tale princess knight rescuing her have been dashed. And now she's settling with a guy that she's not attracted to you're you're leaving society with a bunch of depressed and demoralized men and women men are just checking out society it's it's causing yeah. this incel situation in which men young men you've just given up on society at large and and this is bad for society because young men are the ones who fight for society they're they're the ones who fight our wars these are the men who uh, everything in society that we enjoy and that we experience has been built by men. Our road systems, our electrical systems, our houses, uh, our internet technology—everything's been built by men. And now built, we have built and maintained, built and-, and maintained by men. And now you have skillless, jobless, demoralized men with nothing to live for, with aging infrastructure and people retiring out of the workforce who are who's maintaining this infrastructure. Mm-hmm. This is not it's not gonna go good for society. You see that right now in flight controllers, we're getting more and more near miss instances with uh, aircraft flights, all the skill is draining away. Young men are checking out society. No one cares to be become informed. They have to lower their standards to get people interested. Military standards are being lowered at trying to get anyone into the military. No one wants to join the military. Who wants to fight for a country that doesn't fight for them, yeah. right? freedom from socially and legally enforced monogamy one boy for every girl and vice versa has led not to equality and happiness but laid bare the unadorned and brutal hier- 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 hierarchical nature or brutal hierarchy of nature the most desirable males and females who are in a minority have lives full of sexual and romantic opportunities adventures the choice for excess and numerous options should they decide to marry and have a family life For the rest, both men and women, and the vast majority, there's lack of fulfillment, even desolation in youth, and later on, unsuitable options and unhappy, very late marriages marred by resentment and dashed hopes. Often there are no marriages, nor any long-term pairings after a certain age. Yeah, absolutely. Everything he say, says is correct. How many articles are out there? It's like, "Oh, the the writer of Sex and the City, that female, she's like, I should have had children. I should have started a family. I was career focused. All these women who are career focused are coming up childless, uh, barren. They have no one to spend their lives with. They're becoming cat ladies and they're not happy with it." You see all these these cope postings on TikTok like, "Oh, I'm I'm enjoying my life as as a a doctor with no boyfriend or children in my 40s and 50s it's like there's like a deadness in their eyes
2: they tend to get little dogs to replace the the giant children in their lives
1: it's like i need something to love me because uh what what women discover is once they turn a certain age all this attention that they had been getting prior. Yeah, it's just gone because men aren't actually attracted to ladies their own age even if they're really old, you know. Mm-hmm. It, when you look at who men are attracted to by age, it's like a flat line around around 16 years old, just straight up and down the spectrum, yeah. whereas you look at the ages women are attracted to, they 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 keep caught up with the male line. Right? Women yeah. are attracted to men their age, men are attracted to young women. Which is funny because, like,
2: you look at who do old men tend to pair with? They they, they can't get the 16-year-olds or the 18 or whatever they're attracted to, right? But they, they do pick women 20 years younger than them almost exclusively. Like, it's it's very rare to see, like, a, a 60-year-old
1: pair with another 60-year-old woman. Right, because they, they could actually pull a grab from those women who are aging out of their their sexual peak years who are just looking for a man for stability they're able to attract those Uh, then you have the leonardo dicaprio types who have enough money and fame that they could just continually forever date 24 year olds yeah indefinitely the rest of their life when i was uh in italy i was at a beach and i saw this like young lady maybe in her early 20s with this old guy it's like oh that must be your okay that's not her dad That's (laughs) that's, <laughs> he's got money. He, he's got some sort of money to attract he has that lady. Some money. Yeah. So he, he brings up Charles Murray and we've talked about Charles Murray before author of the bell curve, which is an insightful book talking about uh, IQ and the heritability of IQ, which is a groundbreaking book. And uh, it, that, that has set off a lot of people. I went to a uh, lecture by a planned parenthood lady in college and that book had uh, come out, and she was just sitting on the stage complaining about Charles Murray pointing out that there is intelligence differences in men and women. Like women are like a standard deviation below men on average. It, it, it's not a standard deviation, but oh, it, it's, maybe not a standard it's deviation. It's, it's measurable. Not a standard deviation, <laughs> but there is there is uh, that you know that's on average. So you're going to find plenty of women smarter than men, and and plenty of men oh, smarter yeah. than women. Yeah but on average then but, but, but then a sort of mating will will tend to correct for that by putting
2: the people who are smart together and the people who are not as smart together. Yes. Where where men will still marry down and women will always always try to marry
1: up. And so that's part of Charles Murray's latest book coming apart in which he talks about how like the kids of doctors are marrying kids of doctors. And uh, it's creating, he says this, a sort of mating is causing a bifurcation of society into mutually hostile castes that hate and misunderstand each other. And so you have leftist liberal enclaves within urban settings. And what do they do? They have leftist children who uh, socialize with other leftist children and then mate with those leftist children and then themselves have leftist children. And uh, the rich people are flocking to the cities, creating this rich enclave, whereas the poor rural people are having kids in these rural settings and creating an underclass versus this overclass. Yeah, I mean, we're from
2: South Dakota,
1: so we didn't see
2: enclaves as much. It's probably one of the places in this country that, that has the fewest number of enclaves, though it does have those enclaves. So I was curious what would happen when I moved out to the to New England, where there there seems to be at least demographically a wide range. But what you find almost exclusively is that maybe you run into people in the grocery store as a mixing event, but almost everyone lives. They they sort of price each other out in terms of where they live and how they live. So so they're creating these these this sort of mating happens, kind of through through economics when you can't do it through geography yeah
1: and that that's what these uh rural housing units blocks the uh, taxes are meant to be the great discriminator to make sure that the right type of people are living in the right places maybe you'll have a gated community with homeowner association some of these some of these towns the houses they only allow houses and the houses have to have a certain size acreage which guarantees that they're going to be a certain price Mm mm-hmm And so a lot of these places are creating these enclaves where only like like situated individuals are interacting Inner inner city schools have the lower class individuals interacting with each other, mating with each other, creating what uh, Charles Murray sees as a very destructive thing for American society, where we have this class system emerging based on our breeding patterns. All right. So scrolling forward in his book. All right. Behind the Greek obsession with citizen quality, with excellence, with a personal and a generational biological improvement, lies the converse a deprecation of the life of the slave or more generally of the type of the man who lives only to live, who is willing to survive at any cost or who is willing to accept a subservience to avoid death. I mean, I, I got a cough real quick, so. To speak of superior and inferior ways of life is necessary. It is is necessary to deny that every form of life has dignity or meaning. But in particular, the net effect is to deny that mere life has any worth. Yeah.
2: So this is, I think, the central fear of the left is that if you allow, div- essentially, diversity to be real, uh, in, in other words, that diversity means people are actually perform different in the real world, rather than just it being a different color on, on, a, on a mosaic or something. right? If, it, if, if there's actual real differences in, in terms of real-world performance, then what that does is it creates a hierarchy, which then trivializes the lives of people who are at the lower end of that hierarchy. I don't know if that's true, but that is the fear. I don't think that's actually true. And so he's he's making the point, and everyone everyone seems to always force this argument. It goes to that point that that people's that life itself has no value. And definitely, he says the Greeks thought this way: that that life for the sake of living is not important. It is about becoming perfect.
1: Yeah, you see interesting coping mechanisms like when people are defending the Aztecs and they think Cortez was some evil guy, and uh, the Aztecs are sitting here executing. Uh, human sacrifice tens of thousands of people a year of conquered tribes that they bitterly enslaved and cortez comes in and and liberates them all and they hail him as a liberator uh they think he's so terrible for destroying their culture because the spanish christian culture is just as good as the aztec culture they just have their ways of living and cortez just has his way of living and he shouldn't be imposing on them uh his christian traditions it 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 seems perversely anti-human. It it seems very, uh, the the attempt is to try to say that all societies are equal, whereas clearly they're not. Clearly some societies excel over others. I
2: I think if we're going to be honest about what the attempt is, it's to only target Christianity. It's not to say all societies are inherently equal. that's, That's just a way to slide in. It's a target against Christianity
1: yeah so cortez is so evil for stopping human trafficking and bringing christianity to the people and liberating millions of uh people under aztec control Uh, he's so evil for that but they they're not evil they they just have their way of life and we shouldn't have interfered with that mass human sacrifice it it takes an extreme amount of historical illiteracy to to sustain some of these claims cortez was seen as a god liberator by these these tribes they they were the main force in his assault on the aztecs Uh, they loved cortez at that time and so we we we're going against what the native populations thought about cortez in our condemnation of cortez okay so this this is where he writes uh one of one of uh The taboo subjects you're not allowed to talk about is genetic heritability of traits which are preferable, right? Where (laughs) let's see, what does he say? This is fundamentally where speculation about breeding and about human inferiority and superiority ultimately lead. And it may be argued, maybe by a cynic, that. This is maybe the most profound reason that speculations about human inequality are so painful to modern people and outrage our moral sense. So he's talking about how different people can, might have more value than another, all things considered. And if you start talking about traits,
2: this is what we're discussing. And the, the idea of more value also suggests that some people have no value, which is, which is the big fear that people want to deal with. And again, I don't don't think that that follows.
1: Right. Maybe maybe the homeless guy has value. You can make a.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You could still believe in, in the sanctity of life while noticing that there are differences in performance between different people.
1: Right. He points out that uh, the cathedral is this uh, mythology we've adopted where the Nazis are the ultimate evil. And because the Nazis supported some sort of eugenics program, um, that is bad, and everything that they stood for uh, should be uh, thrown out and just just announced in the harshest terms. So, but he points out that we have a revolution in genetics. We know things now that we didn't know in previous decades, in previous centuries. We used to know them previous centuries ago. People used to understand, that these th- genetics exist, that family lines exist, that traits are heritable, but we lost this with this mantra that all people are equal. We d- we didn't take that in the Christian sense where all people are made in the image of God. We took it in some weird literal sense where all people have uh, w- w- no negative qualities, but they we we're, we're all equally as smart and you as know, talented and have the equal it's, capability. It's it's
2: a lot easier for a bunch of Englishmen who all moved to a colony uh, and are all living amongst each other to declare this, right? Because they're living in a sense where the, the total number of differences between them are not very large. And so you can say, oh, you, you can start trying to form your society around this because the differences are not large and, and make the, and, but then make the mistake of, of this universal declaration that everyone's going to be equally capable of all things. But we, we know that's not possible. You do not want to send certain people into space to be astronauts because they like the, the technical difficulties require you to, to be able to have a high intelligence to deal so, with problems in space. Like, so, like, yeah, go ahead. Like fundamentally, um, the more equal the actual people in your society are already, the more easy it is to believe that this is a universal. Uh, this is why people in Vermont are radical left-wing in their egalitarianism. Because like Vermont is maybe one of the most homogenous states in the entire Union.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I got this book and I've read parts of it. I haven't read it all, but it's by a Calvinist. He was a Calvinist. He was a Calvinist missionary to a tribe in the Amazonian jungle. And so he gets there And he brings his family, like a good missionary, and he spends his life, dedicates his life to learning the language and interacting with these people. And it became quickly apparent to him, he learned the language. It's all like these clicks and grunts, but it's a very small language. They don't have the past tense. They don't have future tense these people live in the moment they they don't have like internal dialogue they sit around the campfire every day slapping each other in the genitals and so this guy after like 20 years of missionary work just he he was a missionary because he's a this dedicated calvinist he thinks that the gospel is for all people all people can conceptualize the gospel he turned against calvinism against christianity he became an atheist once he came to the conclusion that these people just didn't have the intellectual capacity to conceptualize the gospel it just wasn't in there they, they they're they not mentally equipped to understand the gospel it's just not part of their society like their society was living in the moment always the here and now people would i change identities at will the past just did not exist uh there there's there's weird things in society where there's a pregnant lady give, giving birth and no one goes and helps her. And she just dies on the beach giving birth. They they, they can't conceptual. It's it's high time preference. Extreme.
2: What's, that, what's that comment that like there's a certain number of people who don't even have an internal monologue? What's, what percentage like is
1: that? 50% of the world population does not have internal monologue. Yeah. And so in, in addition to that, some people can't see images within their head. Yeah. And they can't rotate shapes within their head. um some people dream in black and white rather than color this was one of the like a stunning thing i had a conversation with a person in
2: undergrad and he was telling me yeah i i don't when i read stuff i just sort of put the words i connect them together and so he he could read like i I don't know he had a supremely fast reading speed because he could just put words together immediately whereas i'm sitting here trying to visualize everything i'm reading it slows me down Right, you you read a book and you're playing a movie in your head. Essentially, you're... yes, that's what I do. And, and so it, it shocked me at the time that you know people experience the world radically differently, and, and and you don't discuss this because you just take it for granted that everyone else is doing the same thing.
1: Right. I was talking to one of these people who can't see images, and uh, she's saying like, like I'd watch Cla- Clarissa explains it all, and they'd have these wavy lines where they have this flashback. She she's like, I always thought that would be really cool if people could do that in real life. She had no idea what was going on. It's just, it just it yes that that literally happens. Uh, people can yeah. relive memories in their head, and it just wasn't conceptually available to her. And so it's 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 real weird. Not not every person uh, is intellectually the same, and and uh, this is this is going to be a genetic thing this internal monologue in in, internal pictures. So yeah, if young men out there try to make sure that your wife, your future wife can rotate shapes in her head before marrying her. Yeah. Give, give her a Rubik's cube. (laughs) Here, solve this, honey. Um, like that, that's your, what you do. We're going on a date. Can you solve this in the car by the time we're, we're there? Yeah. Just checking that. All right. So these things are heredit- hereditable. Um, children will have attributes of their parents, and it's uncontroversial. Typically, when you talk about height, everyone understands. Oh yeah, you marry a short guy, you're going to have short kids. You marry yeah. a tall guy, you're going to have tall kids. If you marry a good athlete, you're going to have good athlete. It, what what <laughs> it becomes controversial when you talk about intelligence and IQ? Then everyone grabs the pitchforks and say, Oh no. I mean, Everyone th-
2: th- th- this is part of the tricky thing because, like, your whole your, your think about your channel is dedicated to the idea of the will, free will, openness. At what point is genetics a determinative factor, and what point is it a, a decision being made?
1: Right. So Brian Kaplan has some in- interesting statistics on that in his book uh, *Selfish Reasons to Have More Children*, and he talks about the heritability of uh, different things. And it, he talks about uh, the effects of parenting long-term on children. So things like uh, criminality is more heritable than than just a normal parent. Your, your, your kid's more likely to be a criminal if the parents are criminals, but it's only like a 30% heritability, right? And so you, you look at other things like, uh, oh, what's, what's a good one? <clears throat> uh, but it's... There, there, there is some factor of free will within within genetics. He looked at uh, genetics differences between fraternal twins and identical twins, and you're able to use those genetics because one's sharing 100% DNA, one's sharing 50, and then you could do things like figure out how many of these are homosexual. And it turns out that genetics only explains like uh, up to 60% of the variance in whether kids are homosexual or heterosexual I thought right? it was very
2: I thought it was very weak actually yeah it's like well 30, it might be like
1: 40 percent like or or 10 percent environmental 30 percent genetic and like the rest is which, some which unknown the, factor
2: right which the argument is either that uh you could argue that maybe it's not there or you could argue that the g- genetics are uh polygenetic so polygenetic traits are hard to detect through heritability studies because Um, you're essentially like expanding the total number of combinations you could possibly make by large amounts. Right. So Mm -hmm. so it creates a very weak signal in heritability, but it doesn't mean that the heritability is non-existent.
1: Right. So, so there is genetic effects to things like long-term happiness, um, your height, your intelligence, uh, things like that. What one of the things he talks about in his book is the adopted kids. There was a huge program in America where these Asian kids were adopted from Korea. I knew one of these ladies who was adopted from Korea. They more resemble in life outcomes their biological parents than they do their adopted parents because genetics plays a huge moving role in outcomes. But It's not 100%, though. And so pulsating shadow writes. I wonder if there's a McLellan type of effect going on there. Internal monologues and vivid dreams enabled by your ancestors exposure to phonetic alphabets. That's an interesting comment. I was reading someone claiming that our dreaming in in, uh, colored imagery might be because of TV watching. And their claim was that older folks tend to dream in black and white because they yeah. were exposed to black and white TVs. I heard about that as well. That's, that that's a claim. There, like
2: there there's a period of time where that people just dream in black and white and think in those terms and before and after people dreamt in color.
1: Yeah, I think it was one of the kids who was watching black and white and thought like back then everything was black and white, something like that. It was either one of my kids or an antidote from someone else at some point. Uh, yeah. Well,
2: you know, I do find that, like, anytime you're reading period uh, piece literature, you start thinking, using the language of that piece. You read Shakespeare, you start, like, forming sentences in Shakespearean English. Uh, You you start reading Victorian English, you you form sentences around that. You start reading the Bible, you start speaking, like, prophecies, like, who knows? Maybe Frank Herbert wrote Dune after reading the Bible,
1: because it's a very similar sort of prose well the bible used to be just standard reading everyone knew all the illusions right. uh, you, you would read something you're like oh that's an illusion to this in the bible in the modern world no one's picking up on these illusions where mass illiteracy is what we have gotten and so here here's an interesting claim and uh he writes modern conservatives very much like to get around this by emphasizing education in particularly in particular the universalizing civilizing effect of a classical education they say oh if you just educate everyone everyone will be brought up to the same standards and that's just not not true at all
2: This is the funniest thing about Connecticut is everyone's obsessed with we got to get in the good schools, the best schools. These are the, like, if you go to this school district, this is the best schools that you could possibly find. and Your kids will be set for life. And it's so comical because these people are not self aware that they're just demographically separating themselves to get to the best (laughs) schools. They, they, They think it's somehow the teachers and the amount of money being poured into it rather than the actual enclave that they created in the first place. And
1: and what schools do we spend the most money on? These inner city schools get the most per student spending. And it's yeah. it's it's just giving no results. That's because education is primarily signaling. And Brian Kaplan, uh, who we talked about already, has a book out about this as well, where it's entitled The Case Against Education, that argues that these degrees that we get like It's it's not about educating someone to some sort of standard. It's mo- more about social signaling to everyone that you're smart enough to attain these degrees. And as we inflate the system by giving more and more people degrees, the signal becomes less valuable. And so people need to get higher and higher degrees of education to a stronger signal. It's not that the education is making them smarter and better able to perform. It's just that now they need some other way to distinguish and say, hey, I'm I'm part of this I'm part of this uh, elite group of people with cognitive ability that's not getting flooded out by the masses. The saddest
2: situation
1: people find themselves
2: in, in the university is to get into the postdoc racket. Uh, Postdoc is, is what people do after they get their PhD. Uh, And most of the time you do a postdoc because you're looking for an academic like you want to be a professor or something. But since everyone wants to be a professor, uh, there's a lot of people applying for this, right? And so what you do instead is you just take on these sorts of, re- effectively, they research internships where you work for some other professor for a long period of time to get enough cred to say that you're worthwhile to become a professor eventually. So it's these insane, effectively, they're insanely long apprenticeships without a guarantee of becoming a professor in the first place. And these people end up getting into their late 30s without ha- some of the smartest people in the country late 30s without having made very much money whatsoever because they went into this racket when i got my degree my my reaction to postdoc was immediately i'm never going to do a postdoc. i will refuse to do a postdoc at, at all costs
1: yeah it's, it's interesting i remember in high school the, uh, public school teachers public school teachers are primarily drawn from the bottom third of college graduates they they tend not to be smart people they tend to be uh the lower IQ college entrance and so uh like correlation and causation is always in flux with these people she said hey look at this 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 earnings chart shows that if you get a degree you're going to earn this much more and if you get this degree you'll earn this much wow. more this was uh like in the 90s before this influx of uh, college graduates and the charts are not going to show the same thing. It's going to show that college degrees getting less and less. I didn't pull up a chart for it because I didn't know it was going to go down this route, but college degrees are earning less and less money. And now college degrees is like standard, standard requirements for kind of entry-level jobs that used to didn't require that
2: that make no money. And that's, you have anti-work Reddit complaining about it all the time. Right. Uh, One of the other funny things about these college degree correlations, you know, every there's, there's some, saying oh women are overtaking men there's so many more women in universities right and so like they're going to get ahead because they're all the, they're the ones getting the degrees uh and you know and then the right you know tucker carlson had the uh who's the guy that milo yiannopoulos was always promoting the the, the one girl but anyway uh look like it's the argument well men are falling behind for this and we really got to save men but then you actually you go look at what's happening and essentially, women all go to university and get their Bachelor of Arts in literature or something, and all the men are being stacked in economics. Whatever men who make it to the university, even if they're not the majority, they're all taking economics degrees, finance, science,
1: math, STEM. And computer.
2: They're, they're still dominant in those fields. They're only going to the university to get a good job. And so they're, they're actually getting a return on their investment when they go there. And the men who didn't go to school, they went to trade school or they came up with some other way of making money. So they didn't waste insane amount of money on their, their uh, expensive college degree and saddle themselves with debt. And so what's actually happening is we're putting women farther behind than they've ever been before because they're all thinking, oh, if I get a degree, the fact that I have a degree will give me a good job. And then they get this mediocre job and insane amount of debt.
1: I think the government um, within the last five to 10 years eliminated like specific degrees needed. And so they just allow general degrees. And I think the purpose of that was to just ensure more women could apply for jobs because they always have these uh, meaningless degrees. And the government is a huge make work program for inferior minds. It's like, that's where all the least useful people get funneled to. And they're the people controlling everything that happens in this country is the people you least want to do that. So let's scroll forward. Okay. So he, he heaps a lot of praise on the ancient Greeks and uh, I, I do have some sympathy for this, that uh, the ancient Greeks were an engineering type of people and innovative people. What were the conditions That brought together and formed an entire culture of philosophers you got uh, people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and uh, Pythagoras and and just all these different philosophers and all of it's coming from the same location like the Romans they conquered Greece and Greek became the fashion that they wanted to emulate they wanted to emulate it the conquered people And bring in those traditions and those philosophies. There's something about Greece that is unusual in human history.
2: I mean, Greece wasn't a conquering population until Alexander. And Alexander did not create a dynasty. He he let it shatter immediately. Um, he, He could have actually created some sort of succession if he wanted to. And he didn't.
1: Well, he planted Hellenistic ideas all over so, the main yeah, so, portion so, 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 of the world.
2: right So Hellenism spread out, but we didn't create. He didn't create some society that pulled everything in and coalesced it into a singular idea the way Romans
1: did. Yeah. So, any more thoughts on ancient Greece and his love of ancient Greece? I mean, I think his whole book.
2: My my understanding of this is his whole book is the, to argue that ancient Greece philosophy is born out of. Uh, Essentially, genetic programming, and that right. Nietzsche is the one who sort of detected this, and, and is trying to pull it out again, and that he's being deliberately misread by people who just don't want to believe that that's what both Plato believed and Nietzsche believed.
1: I do have sympathy for his um, non-traditional thoughts about Plato. Often, you'll meet people who have just elementary knowledge of Plato, like they'll have a like a philosophy degree, and they'll be like, oh, "I know everything about." Plato. Plato's beliefs were 100% what Socrates says in all his dialogues. And uh, we know everything he believed. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, Plato was a polytheist because he talks about the gods in his plays. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you guys are the, it's like you guys are barely functioning college graduates. Like, you guys, it's, mm, well, I'm just, I'm just happy that philosophy majors is like the lowest paid, like college degree, one, one of them. That these people are floundering. I mean, it
2: would. It might be th- of an effect of not reading Plato properly, right? Right. <laughs> if if uh, you have if Bronze Age Pervert has his way, <laughs> philosophy degree will actually matter because it'll have real world political consequences.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he really likes uh, Nietzsche, and so he talks about Nietzsche a lot. I've I've tried reading through uh, Good and Evil, and. Uh, His better book is The Gay Science, which is not at all what the title might suggest. (laughs) It's just uh, disconnected random thoughts about all sorts of issues in little sound bites, which is a lot easier to digest than repetitive paragraphs of long texts about the exact same issue for pages. And then within those pages, complaining about philosophers who do that. You're like, okay, I just... Well, I think, yeah, you... <laughs> I, 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 yeah like th- th- that seems
2: to be a lot of the complaint about Nietzsche is that it seems very sort of random. But I mean, I think the argument for Nietzsche is that he's trying to build a mythology deliberately, like intentionally trying to create some system of ideas that needs to be built not from Kantian discourse, but from some actual, um, like deep within the soul dwelling. Um, a belief in the, in the intuitive uh, greatness of humanity in the first place.
1: Yeah. So uh, scrolling forward, we're almost at two hours here. He starts talking about politics and the upcoming youth, the next generation of children graduating high school. And I think he's on the nose here talking about the counterculture that's, that's emerged against all these nanny state uh, leftist social norms who are trying to control and censor and uh, force people into certain political perspectives. And he, he, he touches on something. <laughs> uh, I, I just had a anecdote that I can't share publicly. So I'll skip that. We'll just start reading mm-hmm. these youths who seem to be racially and culturally diverse and relatively well-educated have done what youth always love to do, which is to shock and uh, shock the br- br- bourgeoisie. And the establishment bourgeoisie culture and education of our time is liberal or rather anti-racist, feminist, anti-nationalist. These young people have loved nothing more than to offend journalists and pundits who are the most vocal gatekeepers of the establishment bourgeoisie morality of our time. And so kids naturally want to rebel against the existing order. And the existing order is anti-fun, forced social justice warrior themes. And and what what's the alternative? Kids can access what he refers to as forbidden knowledge, FBI statistics. Right, right. Arguably, the
2: left is a victim of their own success because they've taken over so many institutions that it's difficult to argue that they're not the institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have had uh, significant institutional control in the past. But they have managed to to mask that control by sort of pretending they were the counterculture, like the Rage Against the Machine. <laughs>
1: it's like you're you are the machine,
2: dude. He, he he's fully fundamentally funded by the machine, promoted. But the whole purpose of him is to give kids the impression that they're raging against the machine while while facilitating the role that the machine wants them
1: to. Yeah, so perpetual victimhood.
2: That that has been lost though, because the the gatekeepers have been so successful and they've also sort of become very incompetent that they're not able to pull the pull the sort of magic trick on people anymore
0: and right. so the counter the
2: counterculture is becoming anti-liberal as a consequence of that but that's a relatively recent thing despite the
1: fact that the left has actually been in control for a very long time and they're doing their best to censor everything on all social media sites he says, to be sure the provocations here in question haven't been driven only by a spirit of contrarianism. Young people and a certain kind of young people are excited and seduced by all forbidden knowledge. Like uh, one example is there's a YouTube clip of a, um, a guy, a student in class trying to explain to the teacher that the wage gap is not because women are just being discriminated against, that, that there are actual reasons. They have different jobs. And so women gravitated to lower paying jobs And so they're going to get paid less. And so clips like that are abounding. Young people are pressing back against their teachers and basically making a fool of these teachers. Yeah, I wish
2: I had the the graph now that shows that, that, you know, men and women historically have been sort of like equally number of left-wingers and right-wingers over time. And then recently, very recently, within the last 10 years, it's radically diverged where young, uh, like, 20 year old and younger males are very right wing, and women are very left wing.
1: All you have to do is unlimited immigration to women. Yeah, there you go. Change change in a second. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) It says, uh, and have a positive and keen interest in this forbidden knowledge through its demonization, not only of Nazism, but actually frank discussions about human nature and about group differences about the role of heritability and genetics that play that the role of her- heritability and genetics play in human behavior and societies the elite of our time have made such knowledge and such ideas irresistible to the young young people want to know about the world they want to have conversations so he, he points out that some of it is against these people because these people are they're not fun uh, you're you're they're they're the people shutting down comedy uh, you can't be the side that hates laughter and hates freedom and Great. likes pushing boundaries. You're going to start losing culturally if you do that.
2: Great. Look at all these these uh, TV shows that are being captured and then completely collapsing because of how boring they are. How uninteresting, how how, how they don't ask any questions of relevance, how they don't create plots that, that, that make the characters worth thinking about in any profound way. And so people just take it or leave it and most people are leaving it
1: yeah are the new star wars are they going to go down in cultural history with the same affection that the originals went down i don't think so no i think the, it's all going to be lost in time the brand the brand has died he says by contrast the youth who are provoking journalists the great thing about twitter is like anyone could say anything to anyone and so you have uh so, some guy like uh Hitler's best friend would be his handle and he'll be replying to a, a journalist for like c- CNN or something like that. And they'll argue back and forth. And so you got this guy who thinks he's like <laughs> some sort of, some sort of like a bastion of, of uh, c- a culture and class and uh, he- the lead a society and you got some teenager online, just mocking yeah, him. Just trolling them like, to death. This is uh, why like all the, all the
2: um news, pages now removed all the comment sections cuz they recognize that they, they absolutely have contempt for anyone who writes comments and the people who write comments have absolute contempt for them so like the the discourse is nothing but but
1: disgust both ways yeah who reads news anymore who watches fox news who watches cnn news hopefully well, nobody hopefully those are dying media
2: but you, you know who
1: does by who's flying a ukraine flag
2: at any given time
1: but it's not very
2: common and so like this this recent situation with Israel and and people beating the war drums for Iran. I don't think there's a public support and I don't know if you can drum it up
1: at this point. Yeah. All, all the mass, uh, mass psyops are, are starting to fail. Yeah. Right. Well, I got a clip that I'm going to pull up, but I'll finish this sentence here. It says, by contrast, the youth who are provoking journalists and pundits on social media with alt-right or racist ideas or facts are the youth, who are reacting against the drastic change in education since the 1990s, who have experienced education from primary school as authoritarian and oppressive. And so young males are just getting beat on day in, day out in school. And now's their time to fight back. And so they do fight back against oppressive education, female-dominated oppressive education, the worst type of education. And so I am going to try to share... A little clip that I got. Present, present. Oh, this is great.
0: A sixteen year old boy denied the Holocaust happened and said it was a good thing. All in the same conversation. <laughs> I don't think he has He's enough to know that, that was uh, a coincidentally, <laughs> I was reading a book on um. Uh, you know the pipeline to this and how these people speak to each other online and how this sort of speech is just like venerated on these social media apps and this little chicken nugget just opens up his mouth and says the holocaust was a good thing because it decreased the world population <laughs> so I go over and on the little monitor thing that and I said go ahead keep talking say more words what else it'll give me more to write down on your referral and he
1: yeah these these male children are being educated by women who have nothing but disgust and contempt for them
2: i mean this is that's the funniest troll of all because they're teaching them oh the world's overpopulated and
1: he's like okay well the holocaust is. Good <laughs> all right, okay. keep playing it gets funnier he kept talking because he
0: doesn't know what to shut the fuck up so he said how do i know it even happened it seems like a myth Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then he said that um, it happened in the 16 somethings (laughs) you don't even know what the fuck we're talking about do you you have no fucking idea what we're talking about so I I explained when it happened and I said that there are still survivors of it today and they would be you know a little bit upset if they heard you talking like this and he said there are no survivors they are all ash (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, the little tried to deflect and say well, so many words in his mouth because he was just digging himself deeper into his hole. Then he tried to change the conversation and asked me if I listen to Christian music. I said, No, I do not. And then he said, Oh, so that means you're a Satanist?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it was so funny. It's so funny. You're going to say something? Oh,
2: uh, yeah. Uh... I mean, like, like this. She has no self awareness that he that he's just trying to press her buttons every which way he can, right?
1: Yeah. One comment on this was pointing out she's dealing with a mental equal. That's why she's getting so worked up about this because she's she's not the superior uh, mental ability in this conversation.
2: Like, I guarantee you, whoever is pushing her buttons knows more about the subject than she does. Well, yeah, absolutely.
0: The two don't have like the one does not equal the other, and then he got up and left uh, without asking permission. Just <laughs> uh, so got a big fat referral, and the vice principal reading my note on all of the things that he said, for the record, you know, uh, he was reading it and he goes, oh, okay, oh, oh, oh my God, okay, oh, oh yeah, yeah, today is sixteen. 16-
1: yeah so these people have no no business being anywhere near a young child it's like these are the people that are educating our children it's just the lowest intellect like the bottom third of college graduates overwhelmingly is what builds the teachers oh man (laughs) gotta represent our our book here Man, uh, we are almost at two hours here.
2: Well, does <laughs> that uh, cover what you wanted to cover? <laughs> well, maybe. Is, like, is, that, is that the goal? Talk about the death of society and why how that affects...
1: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, the implications you... for Christianity and how...
2: I, I In... did want to talk about that a little bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, the enforced monogamy was was key for societal happiness, for societal buy in Um, society, incentivizing males to raise families and to lead strong families and disincentivizing women from having adulterous affairs. Those things are key to a stable and long society. Those are features we find within the Bible. And so it, it's interesting that he's pointing this out now in this common era where all Christian tradition has been torn down by these people who are trying to reformat society into some sort of utopian ideal that's turning out to be a dystopia.
2: So one thing that's interesting about Christianity is they do support monogamy and they do support uh, resistance to cousin marriages, that sort of thing. Uh, but in term, but, but if you contrast it with the Greco-Roman tradition that he's pointing out, uh, Greco-Roman tradition, he says, is a very brutal e- eugenics program that Christianity did not adopt. And arguably a lot of Christianity is about finding the, the meek, the broken, the helpless, and lifting them up. And so there's there's a strong contrast between sort of the brutality of the Greco-Roman tradition compared to the Christian one how that affects selective breeding it's probably a complicated question that requires a, a long talk because you know it, it probably depends on on where you're helping people and where you're being brutal for example there, there's I'm sure there's a lot of complexity related to it. but it is important to note that Christianity is in in a strong sense in opposition to this greco-roman tradition if what he's saying about, Plato, that Plato's real program is, is his long-term goal and vision is actually a eugenics program. That is actually not a Christian program at that point.
1: Well, in Old Testament, we definitely have eugenic programs. You have uh, prohibitions about taking spouses from other peoples. Uh, You have, is it uh, Ezra, where they, they cleanse all their foreign wives and send them away, just just to keep everyone within the tribe they they have so so there's a difference between
2: eugenics and just tribal solidarity tribal solidarity is trying to preserve your people your group
1: i don't think there's that big of a difference but a
2: eugenics program is like identifying and isolating the weak within your group and stripping them of their breeding abilities and, and so that's the difference. It it would be like in America trying to find people in Arkansas and West Virginia and, and, and uh, sterilizing them.
1: So I think a tribal system like that, that stays within the tribes is inherently a eugenics program. And so one speech I was listening to about ahead, why. Everything is eugenics if it because it, if it affects breeding, right, eugenics in some way. One speech I was listening to was saying that all all the innovation was coming out of central Europe was because of the black plague and the black plague was actually eugenic it because it killed off the lower rungs of society the dysgenic individuals and allowed the eugenic people to have more children and flourish and so that was that was the claim right and so if you have a society in which you're regularly going to war there's probably going to be some some of that Selection going I, I think on as well.
2: It, I think the Black Plague, even though it, it's sort of a hundred years scattered around Europe, uh, it's probably still difficult to attribute the, the whole of European society to that sort of eugenics like you have to come up with other things. I've seen I've seen other examples, like the, the better examples of things like they prioritize people in the farms. Farms had all the populations and moved them into the cities. And the people who owned the farms were all kind of middle class type people. So people who are having kids are sort of middle class level people, whereas the the cities would take on everything else. Yeah, so the, the, That, I think, is a more um, long term description of, of these breeding patterns
1: so here's the quote that i wanted to read uh, earlier about uh, the radicalized youth the radicalization of the youth follows upon the complete collapse of western intellectual life that has rendered our authorities not dangerous immoral or degenerate as they think their opponents consider them but boring authoritarian and stupid or, or not being ruled by the the smartest individuals and the ki- kids understand that and they're fighting against that but we're at about two hours and so we'll close there and we're at the end of the chapter anyways we skipped over some of the stuff but i think it's an interesting read i think it has a lot of insights for conservative christians to consider about our outlook on the world and where we want to bring the world if, if we have any sort of political control what kind of things we need to do recriminalizing adultery enforced monogamy uh, the destruction of the sexual liberation. If you want a coherent society in which the men have buy-in to the state of society, if we want to avoid societal collapse. So I think there's a lot of good takeaways for anyone reading this. And I th- I think, so, so the fundamental takeaway I think you should have from
2: this is that uh, this idea of creating more stable societies has to be a repudiation of, egalitarianism as the central virtue whatever you do and 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 there are there are many alternatives to that it's not simply one it's worth discussing but it has to be the the repudiation of the the present uh ruling um what would you call it orthodoxy so it's more of a religion yeah it's a religion yeah it has to be a repudiation of that if you're going to get anywhere, because anything that's not a repudiation of that will will fall prey to that. It, it, they, it
1: will be subsumed by the,
2: the overwhelming pressure against it.
1: Right. <clears throat> All right. So we'll cut off there. Uh, if anyone has any questions or comments, put that down below until this is pulled off of YouTube by the censors. Or start a thread on the God Is Open Facebook page. Uh, Thank you for listening. And thank you, John, for coming on and talking.